It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. My guest today is a woman who has done, seen, or reported on just about everything that can happen in the world of golf over an amazing career. Championship golfer, respected commentator, and author, Dottie Pepper. Dottie, welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's it's great to be with you and, and with everybody else. Um, when I saw the invite come through, I was like, oh, that's new and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Daddy, there, there is so much ground we can cover, literally, uh, in talking about the positive impact that you've had on the game. Uh, but I'd like to begin our conversation with a person who has impacted you. I'm speaking about George Pulver Sr. Tell our audience about Mr. Pulver and the role that he played in your life. Well, he was... Um... I guess for starters, he was a native of Saratoga Springs, New York, where, where I was born, raised, and, and live now. Uh, I moved back uh, about 12 years ago, but Mr. Pulver, was he was a native Saratogian and a World War I veteran, but also PGA of America member, uh, worked under Seymour Dunn in Lake Placid, uh, was really golf royalty in this area, and he ended up being my, my mentor, uh, but on, on so many levels, not only learning the golf swing and learning uh, what it takes to become a, a championship caliber player. But he, as many golf professionals in that era were, he, he did everything. He built golf clubs there in my office. Uh, it was a golf course architect. He was an agronomist. He, he did every level of what it was, what it meant to be a golf professional. And, and you couldn't help but learn from the guy. So um, uh, very, very fortunate to have crossed paths with George Pulver. So when did you first cross paths with him and how did the, how did the exchange of letters begin with him? So I, I was, um, I wasn't even a teenager yet. He and his wife, Martha, um, even though he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, still wasn't working. He was, he was newly retired at that time. Um, he still had his hand in, in Brookhaven golf club. And that's where I crossed paths with him at the very first First bit, I was learning to play the game, um, and my grandmother introduced me to the game, and that's where she was a member. So I knew him uh, really as the elderly gentleman who was up there playing golf with his wife, who I actually played competitive golf against in a local league. And the letters came from me reaching out first, looking for help in finding tournaments to play in, because I couldn't, it's not like back in 1980, you could jump on the internet and find out where local golf tournaments were for kids or, or for, for women. Uh, and so there certainly wasn't any way to access the AJGA through that, that sort of Avenue. So I was, I was reaching out to him, uh, really just looking for some help on how to play, where to play and how to have access to those tournaments. And then it evolved a year later into my dad taking me as far as he knew how to in the game and really needing a different level of instruction. And, Fortunate, again, um, that Mr. Pulver, uh, I had that experience with him. What possesses a young lady to not just reach out and write the letters that you did, but to maintain and hang on to them over time? Uh, necessity first. <laughs> I was desperate. <laughs> um, secondly, I, I guess even as a 14, 15-year-old, I recognized that there, there was something special about this relationship. Uh, I liked to write. 
uh, he loved to share his knowledge and he wanted to share it in a way that was, that was, I, I guess, more than just temporary. Uh, these, these letters became very permanent and something that became a huge resource for me, but it wasn't Mark until the, the pandemic lockdowns in 2020 that I discovered that he had kept every letter that I wrote to him. I thought it was very much a one-way street. And how did you come to find that? And what did you wind up doing with the realization that you now had not all of the letters he wrote to you, but the ones that you had written to him? Over the years, I, I developed a really strong relationship with his children. He had, he had three kids um, and all of them collected or kept portions of, of what was in his home when he passed and gave some of that to me, including part of his golf library. But one of the things they also gave me was this file of forbidden articles. He never wanted me reading traditional uh, golf instruction articles. I could read about the people and I could read about the places and I could read about the, the, the mindset of what it takes to play championship golf, but he didn't want me getting caught up in the mechanics and being locked in. Um, but he, has, he knew how I, how I best learned, but he always cut those out and kept this file folder of them. So when, when he did pass, his son, George Jr. Um, gave me this file folder. And I thought, as I was cleaning out files and thinking about, you know, this, this would be a good time to write the book around the letters that I have, that I opened that file folder in it. And I did find all of those articles exactly as I would have imagined with his notes on them, whether he agreed or not. And they go back to 1966, the articles that he had cut out. Um, but he had also in that same folder kept all of the letters I wrote to him. So uh, there was a shortage of Kleenex in the house that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the project of, of writing the book that ended up being titled Letters to a Future Champion, my time with, with Mr. Pulver, um, it took on a completely different direction because I thought I had just a nice little booklet and it was going to be able to publish something that would be about the letters, my relationship, what the, what he taught me. And it turned out to be a much, much bigger project. What was the feeling when you started to read yourself from that age? Gosh, you know, I, I went back and, and a lot of the feelings that I had then of just being so enamored with the game and, and how do I, how do I get better? How, how do I um, learn from the experiences that were some good, some not, not so good. Um, you look, you look back at all the developmental stages, little boxes you checked along the way. It was, um, it was a back, a walk backward through my childhood, through my college career, through my early amateur career, because he never saw me play professional golf. He, he passed away in 1986 and I didn't um, turn pro until the middle of 87. So it really was a walk back to my beginnings of the game. And, and a lot of the things that he shared with me were not golf, uh, not, not about being on the driving range or competing in, in a golf tournament, but uh, real life lessons and value of education. Letters to a future champion. My time with Mr. Pulver, how can people find a copy of it? It's on my own website at dottypepper.net. And it's also in stock at the Northshire bookstore. Uh, they have a website as well, northshire.com. It's a, it's a brick and mortar store here in Saratoga Springs and in Manchester, Vermont. But also the PGA Tour Superstores have it. Excellent. Thank you very much for bringing, for bringing him, not just, not just through the book, but through our conversation, bringing, bringing him to, to life for our, for our listeners. So thank you for that. Thank you. 
Uh, you mentioned a couple of times you're a native of Saratoga Springs. Uh, you also mentioned here in passing that your grandmother introduced you to the game. Uh, how old were you and how quickly did you take to the game? I was I, I was introduced to the game the, the summer that I went from age seven to age eight. So, you know, decent hand-eye coordination. But she she after her her uh, husband, my grandfather, passed. She had in the in their family fa family turkey farm close. She had a lot more free time on her hand and some disposable income. And it was also um, a way for her to stay fit and stay active. So golf was golf became her thing and. Being the oldest grandchild, I thought that was pretty cool that I would be able to spend time with her, and and I loved it from from the beginning because partly because you didn't you could go do it by yourself, you didn't have to have somebody on the other end on the other side of a net or anything like that. So um, it was I, I I really I really loved it from the very beginning, and I had a lot of family support. And you've moved quickly through the, the through the junior ranks. Uh, you, you, had a, you have a pair of New York junior amateur titles mm -hmm. from your younger days. Uh, take you back to 1984. You're 17 years old. You're playing the U.S. Open at Salem Country Club in Massachusetts, and you were the low amateur at age 17. What, what do you remember, maybe perhaps less about the golf and more about the experience that you took away from that week? First of all, um, I'd never played a competitive round of golf that early. I had a 7.09 tee time <laughs> on Thursday morning. I I'd played plenty of early golf, but never competitive at that hour. So I, I, I remember that. I also remember Mr. Pulver telling me things to look for in the architectural style of Donald Ross that would help me out through the week. So there weren't as many surprises, I think, that many other players of my age would have had. Um, but I remember the, the golf course just being so difficultly prepared. And by the time Saturday rolled around, the temperatures in the Boston area had pushed a hundred. And I remember the 17th green taking on this, this purple hue. It was, it was just cooked and so hard. <laughs> and those were things that uh, I hadn't experienced at that point. Is there, is there tunnel vision at that age in terms of, of simply playing, walking the course, playing the next shot. I mean, there, you know, the, the surrounding aspects of the U.S. Open had to be, you know, something that you either embraced or tried to block out. I think there was a little bit of that, Mark. Um, I had, you know, a lot of the, the players I was kind of hanging around with earlier in the week were players that I knew from college golf playing at Furman. And that, that was a little bit of security. We were all, we were all like with our eyes and mouths wide open. Oh, what have we got ourselves into? I think, but, uh, there was definitely some tunnel vision. I, I can be known for that. <laughs> and, uh, just, I, I knew it, it was just pretty special to have been there. My sister caddied for me. We got through the qualifier at Appawamas, which is on the you know, classic golf course, difficult golf course. And to be able to have a U.S. Open on the East Coast meant that I had the opportunity to play. So I recognized the opportunity that was there. Um, what I don't think I recognized was how important that the success of that week would be toward the rest of my amateur career because it gave me access to women's amateurs down the road. It gave me access to all the other big tournaments up and down the East Coast. Uh, and it also set the, set the foundation for me to be part of the Curtis Cup team, which made me realize how important the Solheim cup team was in 1990 when I was on that first team. So it was, it was a really important week from a foundational standpoint. 
And you mentioned Mr. Pulver gave you some tips about playing a Ross course. Do you, do you remember any of the specifics of that? What stood out to you? Well, he told me to expect a golf course that they hadn't moved a lot of land to, to create. So it's, to me, the, the natural landscape of it just stood out. Um, he had talked to me a little bit about the rock, rock outcroppings that I would find all over at Salem. 16th hole, the par three, the long par three. Um, just there weren't really any surprises that popped out of the golf course. The preparation, yes, but the golf course, no. And how important it was to have a game plan on a Ross golf course, how to not be short-sighted because you're going to pay the price and to not uh, compound an error because it's going to be a tough test. So those, those were all of those things that he stressed. And he also, he was a big proponent of being a good lag putter. And I can't imagine uh, playing a Ross golf course under competition if you didn't have that as part of your preparation. And was that uh, an introduction to you in terms of uh, that thinking through an architect's mind on that? Or is that something that you had already learned to embrace, whether it's a Ross or a Rain or a Tillinghast or Die or what have you? That that was my first foray. Uh, It was even, well, I wouldn't, no, I take that back. I think seeing Tillinghast at Somerset Hills. Um, that, that was, that was an eye opener, um, and getting to the Redan early on, (laughs) that was, that was like, well, what the heck do I do with this? That's an education. That, that is everything right in your face, isn't it? Uh, so it was my, my first USGA championship, uh, girls junior at Somerset Hills. So that was in 83 because I was just about to go to college. And, uh, that, that was, that was the first big one. Now we have Ross in this area at Sagamore and at at Glens Falls, but they're, I I don't think the architecture was as in your face at those two particular golf courses that I faced in the situation with Somerset Hills, the Tillinghast, and then, then Ross again at Salem. Uh, you mentioned that in college, you played at Furman, uh, you earned all American honors on three occasions. Um, what did you learn about yourself at that time that convinced you you were ready for the LPGA tour? Uh, that I still had a lot of work to do <laughs> first and <laughs> foremost. Um, the my freshman fall season wasn't wasn't all that great. In fact, it wasn't. I, don't, I think I barely had a top twenty, and you know, came in as a pretty thinking I had kind of had my stuff together. It was it was pretty rocky, but. Um, got things turned around pretty well for the, for the spring, the spring run. And we finished in the top three in the, in the nation. And I, I had a chance and I, you know, I, I still remember getting sick every day before I went to the first tee. I was, I was playing some really good golf going into that national championship and had a chance um, to win. I needed to hole out at the last hole to tie. Um, and I four putted to finish fifth. <laughs> so I you go from, great highs to quick lows and those are the ones that you remember most they 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 are and you learn a lot from them um but i you know i i I learned i had i had some of the tools but i also learned i needed to stay in college for four years and and finish out all of it 17 years on the professional tour 17 tours uh, 17 tour titles to go along with it uh, nice symmetry there. Uh, it includes winning a pair of majors. You won the Nabisco Dinosaur title in both 92 and 99. And just to, to catch our audience up, in 92, you won in a playoff against Julie Inkster. 
In 99, you shot 67-66 on the weekend and won by six strokes over the entire field. So besides the way that you won those two events, what was different about you and your reaction to winning those titles, 92 versus 99? Um, gosh, 92 was, was, was really, it was a huge win, not, not because it was a major, but it got me across that threshold of, of winning. 91, I'd finished third on the money list and didn't win a golf tournament. That's, that's, that's playing a lot of golf and playing a lot of good golf without uh, having to have a, a trophy shipped home. And, you know, so I think there was, there was some frustration having not gotten it across the finish line. Um, 99, so 92, it was just, it was a gritty, gritty finish. I had to birdie the last hole to get into a playoff and then I, I won inland. So the, the traditional dive into the lake didn't happen. I won on a landlocked 10. <laughs> so I did not get soaked the first time. The second time was, was really different because I'd had, I'd had a good season in 98 coming off a huge Solheim cup at Muirfield village had taken a lot of positives there and moved to the Loxahatchee club over the winter and started really paying attention to fitness and preparation and I, I came into that Dinah in 99 ready to win. And, and I think I would have taken, I'd, I'd have been really disappointed if I hadn't had a big week that week uh, because I, I was ready to, to take that, to kind of take my game to a different level. And it was a week that um, I can still remember the Rod Stewart songs that were in my head the entire week. I couldn't get them out. And just having i didn't drive the ball very well but i pitched and managed my game better than i'd ever done before and what rod stewart songs were in your head it was hot legs all week <laughs> and was, would you care to share a couple of bars with us <laughs> yeah no thank you very much well, it's just, no. i toss it out there <laughs> golly yeah hot legs was in my head all week long i mean i i'm a big rod stewart fan anyway but it would not go away Seemed to work pretty nicely for you, though. It did. <laughs> and, the, and, and the jump in the lake did happen in 99? It did happen. I still still have the, uh, the bathrobe hanging in my closet. For a game that is, Dottie, by design, based on individual success, uh, there is something that draws the best players to want to compete in team competition. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, your, your, your college days at Furman, but you also represented the United States six times in Solheim Cup competition. You've also served as an assistant captain on, on a cup team. What was the draw of those events for you? I think, and I've, I've said this before, that when I played on the Curtis Cup team in 86, that we were all rookies. All, all eight players, nobody had ever had Curtis Cup experience before. And I don't think any of us really appreciated what it meant to represent the United States in that, in that sort of theater. And it fueled me. We got beat very badly at home at Prairie Dunes. Um, talk about another architectural just gem there. Um, I think it, it fueled me to really appreciate what it was to play on a team and to have the anthem played and the flag go up and come down. And, and especially when it comes down in victory, um, it, it just, it really made me appreciate 
how much I, I value the opportunity to represent my country. What were the team meetings like the night before matches? No, oh, they were great. Um, I, I will never forget what Whitworth said to us in the, in the first. So the United States came in as heavy, heavy favorites over a European team that, that still had on at least Lot Neumann and Laura Davies. I mean, there were Allison Nicholas. There were phenomenal players on that team. Trish Johnson. Um, but she said, you want you to always remember that players will play up to beat you. They, they will play at a level that they're not normally accustomed to playing if they have to raise their game. And Lopez and Bradley were, were the lead match that went out match one first Solheim cup Friday morning at Lake Nona. And they got beat. And it, I think it woke everybody up uh, to the fact that this was what we were supposed to win. And we ended up winning pretty, pretty handily that it wasn't going to necessarily be easy. And I, and I think the other one that, that particularly stood out to me was in 96 at, at St. Pierre with Judy Rankin as the American captain, we were in a hole going to Sunday. Um, Pat Bradley wasn't playing very well. She was going to be put out first. And the message from Judy was so simple on Saturday night. And she just looked at us all. We had a simple meal down in the, in the, in a club uh, room where we could all be together. And she said, I only ask you to go do one thing tomorrow and that's go do what you already know how to do. You already know how to play and you already know how to win. So just go do what you already know how to do. And the collective sigh was, it was palpable. Like, yeah, we're making this too difficult. <laughs> just go do what we already know how to do. And it was one of the great comebacks, but to go from top to bottom through that team, I think we lost a total of a point and a half that afternoon. It was, it was pretty remarkable. And you are literally, you know, your day-to-day -day existence is to play individual golf and you're working for yourself, your caddy, whoever it is that is supporting you along the way. When you get into that room and then when you get back onto the course, are you feeling the representation of the other teammates, the country, are you trying to block that out and get the tunnel vision going again? I think all of the above. I think you feel the support of your team, um, your captain, everybody that's been there to keep, to keep you going forward to, to even just to be on the team, but to be in that moment, um, there's, there's pressure. Absolutely. But, um, you know, you, you, I think about the, the, the teammates that I was, the, the players that I was paired with and the, the trust you have in them, the confidence you have in them and the stories you tell 20, 30 years later are just, they don't, they don't ever go away. And Brandy Burton and I are in regular conversation. If I have a, I'm Julie Inkster, I mean, all of these players that I, that I played with um, and you went through some pretty highs and pretty big highs and pretty low lows with, with all of them. And, uh, there's, there's a sisterhood there. Has it changed your relationship going forward when you're able to compete with somebody in that setting for that week to see them, then back on tour the following week? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, and, and part of that's an adjustment too, because the, the team camaraderie is gone and you're, and you're now you're trying to just beat each other's brains in again for, <laughs> for an individual win. But, but those weeks, those weeks linger for a very long time. 
For the past decade or more, uh, golf fans have heard your voice and seen your face from tournaments everywhere, uh, reporting at different times for ESPN and then Golf Channel and then NBC and now with the CBS network. How did you come to enter broadcasting, Dottie? I was given a, a, a nudge by Judy Rankin back in 1999. It wasn't two months after I'd won that second Dinah. And ESPN was covering the U.S. Women's Amateur at Biltmore Forest in Asheville, North Carolina. And Judy said, I know this is a week off on the LPGA schedule. Do you think you'd be interested in doing a little television? And I said, well, uh, I guess it's only an hour from where I was living at the time in, in upstate South Carolina. And she came and she stayed at the house. We did the commute back and forth every, every day, back and forth. Um, and I picked her brain about it. And I just, it was always in the back of my mind that as a plan B, it'd be pretty cool to be able to be a broadcaster and kind of be able to talk about golf. And, but I would have been very happy at a local television station doing local sports too. So don't get me wrong. It didn't have to be at this level. I was nudged by her at a very, at a good time in a good direction and also had her support when I knew my body was breaking down in 2004 to, to continue on and, and look in a, in a deeper way that this would be my plan B. What was the moment when you realized I, I can do this? This is, this is a thing for me. Mm. I think in 2005, I had transitioned from just doing women's golf and doing a lot of studio work at Golf Channel to doing some PGA, early PGA Tour work for Tommy Roy, who was working, still is at NBC. And their Thursday, Friday coverage for the PGA Tour was, was on USA. And that was sort of my put my toe in the water bit. Got some good guidance from Tommy. We kept kind of refining my presentation. And I remember covering the LPGA Championship in Delaware and him calling me and saying, I need you to go with us to the Ryder Cup. How about that? Wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I'm in. <laughs> so I, I think that was my moment that I thought, well, maybe this isn't, maybe this has some real legs. And you'd have gone to the Ryder Cup with them just to fetch coffee for them, I'm guessing. I, you're darn right, I would have. <laughs> and so, that was, got... so, so that was the aha moment. Uh, yeah. Every broadcaster has an UGG moment as well. What was oh, yeah. what still stands out to you from the early days? Uh, 2007 at the Solheim Cup when I thought I was in in break and called the American team choking freaking dogs because that's what they were doing and they for well, we were told we were we were in break and I went into my moment where I was I you never cheer for any side if if you're a great broadcaster. You take it right up the middle and off air. I got caught being a fan of the American team and talking to myself, talking out loud as I would have talked to myself. And uh, the, a challenge that you have overcome with, with, with great, uh, with great professionalism ever since then. I hope so. I mean, I, I talked about it on the air the next day and I would say there are still a couple of fractured relationships, but I, I made a mistake. The guy at the, at the switch made a mistake. There were, there were lots of compounded mistakes. Um, but I, 
I let my passion bleed through and I wanted the Americans to win. Of course I wanted the Americans to win. Um, but I also knew what it was like to be in that position as a player and expect so much of myself and you know, what, what I thought players could finish. Today with, with CBS, you're oftentimes a course reporter. You're also sometimes in the tower as well. Uh, when you're, when you're walking the course, do you ever uh, count your steps on the weekend of a broadcast? I, I don't, but we did do, and it never made air this year, but we were, we were kind of curious as to with tiger's condition, how far it would actually be to walk from one green or one tee to 18 green at Augusta national, but even more so what the elevation change was, because it's, it's very difficult to relate just how, how I wouldn't even say undulating, but the golf course is hilly. The whole property is very hilly. So I started in the practice round and I walked as I normally would walk. Um, you know, sometimes I'm at, I don't have to go all the way back. So for there, I don't have to go all the way back to the 11th tee. I don't have to go all the way back to the seventh, but I'm zigzagging across. So it, it all turns out to be just about right. And it was about five and a quarter miles just from the first tee and an elevation change of over 530 feet. That to me was the biggest number. And that's something that you just don't see at, on tour no. to, that, to that level. No. Muirfield Village, I think, is second most difficult to walk uh, on, the, on the regular schedule. Now, look, I, I know the plantations out there for the Tournament of Champions, but there's also a couple of shuttles there. So that one doesn't get my full, full respect. Um, uh, the, the access, the, the the great job that CBS has done for for now five or six decades in covering the Masters uh, is well known. Uh, the access that you have and that you're allowed to have with players uh, seems to have changed a little bit, evolved a little bit over recent years, and it seems like there's a little bit more, a little bit more on course activity. I, I think not having patrons in 2020 allowed CBS with of course with the with the okay from augusta to try a few things and it was putting a, a person on the ground for the first time but it was also the drones and, and i think the combination of the two has really it's it's added another element and speaking of that what type of interactions do you have with caddies or players between shots do you do you speak with them at all do do caddies signal you to let you know what club is being used what take us take us behind the scenes a little bit on, on the interactions you have both with you and your crew have with with the players out there yeah um typically yes we'll get a we'll get a signal from a caddy to my spotter who I've had since I started with with CBS and, and I've unequivocally the best in the business, Wayne, Wayne Richardson. Um, and then he'll pass it to me through hand signals. And then, and at the same time, it gets called into the truck. So when you see that graphic pop up, that's because it's come from Wayne from the caddy. And sometimes we don't get a signal. So there are times that nothing goes up or it doesn't come in time to get it up on the graphic, but we rely on the caddies. Um, my interaction between player and caddy is if they want to talk to me, Fantastic. I will, I would never get in somebody's space in, in a competitive situation. It's my, my job to really observe and bring something to the, the viewer that I can see that they can't. Now, whether that happened in a commercial break, it's something that we were on a different shot, um, noticing something in, in their stride in the timing that it's taking them to hit shots that they've become a little out of their routine. That's, that's what I can bring in and what I really try to try to stay tuned into doing. 
really the, the, the opportunity, uh, the skill that you bring as a former player in terms of, of what the situation might call for. That's exactly the way Tommy Roy taught me to call golf. Um, he said, you, you know, you've been in the, in the fire, you've done well, you've thrown up on yourself, talk about golf as you see it as a player. And, and I try to continue to do that today. And, and speaking of the masters, I, I do have to ask you the, uh, Saturday afternoon, the 18th hole, Scotty hits it into some batch of trees that I believe were still on the property, but appeared to be somewhere off towards South Carolina, uh, and, and the, the massive ball search that went on there. Right. Um, it was, that was rule school 101. You could have, I, middle of March, I went back to do a, a virtual workshop with the USGA and I spent five days, two hours a day in a virtual classroom and every bit of it was paid off in in that five minutes in, involved with with scotty whether it was identifying a ball identifying the ball um how you get into a shot without disturbing too much without breaking anything just taking a, a natural stance and getting into to play a shot um taking relief keeping it in the proper relief area uh being able to substitute a ball which I, there was some kerfuffle about that you can always substitute a ball now in that situation um it was it was just check mark check mark check mark check mark and it it paid again i think that was my seventh rules either workshop in person or virtual it paid off again and in that moment You've got golfers, you've got caddy, you've got uh, uh, course officials, uh, you've got your own eyes, and that uh, along with your with your spotter, your camera people. You've also you're also listening to uh, Jim Nance and whoever else might be speaking on the air at that moment. You've also got a, a producer in your ear as well. Am, am I capturing this correctly? Is that the number of voices you're dealing with? You didn't miss anybody, and you didn't add anybody. You're right on. <laughs> uh, you must sleep well at night. <laughs> Mark, if I go to, if I get off the air and my brain's not tired, I haven't done a really good job. I haven't, I haven't focused enough on listening to all of those voices. Um, typically, yeah, it's, it's a demanding job, not just because it's more, I firmly believe what my job and great broadcasters, <laughs> and I'm not included. They are great listeners rather than even great speakers because you have to listen to everybody and formulate staying on story or inter or putting in something that you might not agree with that's that's become part of the story so you have to listen to your teammates you have to listen to the production truck you have to be aware of all of your surroundings all day long and it, it can wipe you out so at this point what haven't you done in the game of golf what's still left on the bucket list wow uh gosh i've I've done all of the majors. Maybe to have what, what a perfect show that I don't um, pick myself apart <laughs> um, line by line every night. I still go back and watch three years and then constantly kind of figure out how I think I can get in and get out quicker or a little smoother or tone can be a little better or just be more efficient about how we get our information. I, I, I think, I think there's a perfect show out there uh, and I'd, I'd like to be part of it. Did the perfect round of golf ha ever happen for you? No, 
<laughs> All right, no. just checking. <laughs> no. Uh, no. So I, I give you one chance to play one round of golf at any course in the world. Where are you going to go? I've answered this as we've already talked about this place. If I had one round left to play, I, um, I would go back to Salem. Just be, because of my, my experience there as, as an amateur, uh, the impact the golf course itself made on me. But if there's someplace I have not played yet that I would love to play, I think it would be Cyprus. Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver is the name of the book. DottiePepper.net is where you can find it. Dottie Pepper, thank you so much for your time today. That wraps up this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download insights from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Thank you for listening, and until next time, so long.